This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief, with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my lovely mother, Bobby Comforto, who is not joining us for the intro, but fear not, she will be here for the episode. Um, hello, everyone. How are you? Pardon me. I am uh, recording from my home, and they are digging up the sidewalk outside. Um, as it seems like they have been for, I don't know, the past six months, but hopefully they're making some progress. <laughs> but anyway, if you hear a weird background noises, you know, this is where we're at now. This is a, a background noise podcast. Um, but it is also a podcast, as you know, about food and grief. And this week we are joined by an amazing guest. We are joined by filmmaker Kimberly Warner. Um, Kimberly has worn a lot of different hats in the film industry, but she is currently working on uh, a feature documentary and a docu-series and a podcast um, called Unfixed. And Unfixed is about the stories of everyday people who have learned to thrive with chronic and incurable conditions. Um, And this is really just such a touching, honest, raw, amazing, and really kind of like different look at people who are dealing with chronic illness. Uh, The whole concept of unfixed is so beautiful and really eye-opening and exciting and sad and cool. And I just can't say enough how much we appreciated our talk with Kimberly and her perspective uh, in talking about Unfixed and then talking about her own life, her own chronic condition, her own experiences with grief and food. And it was a really, really good conversation. Um, Really good. You know, Bobby and I, we always chat on the phone after each episode and this was no different. And we were just both like so floored by Kimberly and uh, her perspective and her personality and her just she's wonderful so please follow everything that she does we'll put links to every everywhere you can find Kimberly and her work um please check out Unfixed the docuseries uh the podcast it's really really poignant and really um profound and I think a lot of people in the grief community even if um and, and outside the grief community like even if you're not dealing with a chronic illness yourself it really is so intertwined with you know, experiences of grief and and coping and uh, acceptance. And so we can't really say enough how much we appreciate Kimberly and the work she's doing and all of the wonderful folks who uh, have joined her in her docuseries and her podcast. Um, So we hope that everyone is, you know, okay out there. Um, It's a cliche at this point to say these are challenging times. These are really traumatizing times um, for all different kinds of people for all different kinds of reasons. And I think we're all really trying to grasp um, for some meaning and comfort. And uh, I also think that we've been so traumatized by what's been happening in our country and world, um, you know, over the past year and way before that too, uh, for a lot of folks. But, um, you know, that I think we might not realize the impact it has on us sometimes. And sometimes it just creeps up. I know for myself, I'm just like, I'll get a real wave of sadness. And I'm like, what's going on with me? What is this? You know, why am I feeling this way? And 
there are some kind of acute reasons I can point to in my personal life, but also it's just an overwhelming time to be a person for a multitude of reasons. So everybody, I just, my, my hope for you is just to be understanding with yourself if you're having a hard time. Um, and to reach out to your fellow humans because it's comforting, I think, to know that like everyone's kind of having a hard time making sense of things. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can have, uh, empathy and strength and and hope and pragmatism and um yeah and all of it and an acceptance of ourselves and our feelings um and in in line with what's going on and what we talk about in this episode um being okay with it like not being fixed right now and kind of just being in the moment and being present for this difficult time but we are here and we're thinking about you when we're with you and uh yeah please enjoy <laughs> please enjoy this episode of Kimberly we really 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 definitely did and uh, we love you all and take care of yourselves and each other as always okay bye Today we are welcoming filmmaker Kimberly Werner to the program. Kimberly, joining us from Oregon. How are you? Or Oregon. Oregon, Oregon. Oregon. You know, Oregon, it, it, to me, it was Oregon for about 25 years until I moved here. And then everyone corrected me. So it is Oregon. <laughs> Oregon, <laughs> Oregon. Okay, cool. Well, Kimberly, it's really wonderful to have you with us today. We are fans of yours and... We're just like so psyched. Both all week, Bobby and I were just like, "Oh my gosh, it's almost Kimberly Friday." <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have to say, I've been so excited to talk to the two of you and this mother-daughter team. I mean, how cool is that? Like, oh, it just makes my heart my heart warm. So I'm, I'm so happy to share some time with you guys. Thank you. Thanks so Thank much. You. So, what have you been? Uh, what have you been cooking and eating during this? past couple of weeks months you know that we're in covid time we're just coming out of the holidays like what's been on what's been going on in your kitchen it's been on in the menu well yeah surprisingly in oregon even though we have had you know f- below freezing days we still have kale in the garden <laughs> mm-hmm. that i can harvest unless there's you know little frosty bits on it so uh they usually melt off by 11 a.m. So I've been trying to get the last bits of kale out of the garden. And it is so fun to, in the middle of winter, to be able to grab a few of those leaves and mix it into um, slaw. I love making coleslaw in the middle of winter. I like the winter vegetables and trying to stay seasonal. So, um, but last night, I actually got my husband a mushroom growing kit for Christmas. Ooh, that's cool. So we harvested so many shiitake mushrooms um, the other day, and I just put them into a a, a vegan white sauce uh, with white wine and some sort of almond ricotta, and put that over chickpea pasta, and it was so. Ooh, so it was, delicious. you know, the shiitake mushrooms. I, I I know you're not supposed to wash those, but mm-hmm. 
I always wash them from the grocery store. So this yeah. was my first fabulous experience of harvesting shiitakes and not washing them. <laughs> Ooh, how luxurious, how freeing. Yeah. <laughs> and Kimberly, just... did they grow since Christmas? You're saying he got this for Christmas and now you've harvested them already? Oh my gosh. They grew uh, within a week. Uh-oh. They massive amount. I could send you a picture. I mean, we had so many shiitake mushrooms. I also got him a lion's mane kit. That one's a little, it was Ooh, intermediate level. So we're not sure if we're going to get um, the lion's mane to grow, but supposedly within a couple of days, the pink brain is supposed to emerge. Wow, <laughs> that's so cool. So, You're having a, an organic science experiment going on at yes. home. That's so exciting. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's really fun. Um, I love this chapter of our lives where we're growing a lot of our own food and with the pandemic, I already cooked a lot, but with the pandemic, we're not eating out at all. And so it's, it's been fun. Every Friday we go into the, the closest grocery store, which is about 25 minutes away and we get food for the week and I meal plan. And, um, some usually involves some slow cookers and slow roasted meats and lots of vegetables. Yeah. There's something like very, for people who do like to cook and maybe for people who didn't like to before but now are kind of forced to, there's something I I have found at least, um, I'm a chef, but I actually rarely cook at home for myself, but something very kind of cathartic and calming about the ritual of preparing meals during this time. It's like one of the only things that I feel like no matter what else is frayed or or wild in the world that we can kind of like tuck into, you know, like a routine, a rhythm around like self-care and cooking. It's been an interesting kind it's of grounding. Yeah, it, I absolutely agree. And, you know, my I have problems with the screen in general and I have to take a lot of breaks. And so I have a really hard cutoff every day so that I can go prepare meals. And it is such a relief to be able to walk away from the screen around 4 or 4.30 if I'm good and and just know that the rest of my day is analog. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, can you tell us it's a little bit about kind of where this love of cooking started? Like, was it, you know, a familial, was it something that was in your family growing up? Like, what were some of your traditions growing up around food and cooking? You know, that's a really interesting question because my it was definitely from my mom. She was a, a psychotherapist and but also always managed to have a crock pot on the on the kitchen counter while she was getting her doing her graduate studies or um, you know preparing meals after an eight hour day at the office. Um, and she really was good at having. We had the the rituals around food. We had the fondue pot at Christmas Eve. We had the German apple pancakes on um, Easter Sunday. You know, she she really helped us um, feel connected to food in in a very ritualistic way. She also tried growing her own food for a while. This was in Wisconsin, um, but we had a lot of deer, and I think she just got frustrated with it all. Um, and she wasn't getting help. My father was a heart surgeon. And so he was at the hospital all the time. So I think she also just felt like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> this is, this is all on me. So, um, she was, uh, the, the interesting part about it though, is that she's not a foodie. So I even, 
sent her, I was so excited about this episode, and I, I sent her your bios, and Aww. mom, look, this is a mother-daughter <laughs> team, and, and she, she said, you know, that how sweet, what a wonderful thing, but I'm really not into food, and I, <laughs> which I kind of want to question her some more. Yeah, food I denying, think, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's some, some denial in there, or just she's identifying with this chapter of her life where, you know, she has meals delivered to her house now. And um, I, I, I know that while she says she's not really into food, she planned beautiful meals for us. All, she taught natural food cooking classes at the YMCA in the 80s in Wisconsin. Um, she was very connected to the importance of healthy food in our lives. Well, it's interesting how, you know, I think that certain times in life when other things might, and I don't want to speculate about, you know, what's going on in your mother's life, but I can just speak for myself. And I think sometimes when maybe other things in our life are feeling challenging or difficult or unfulfilled, like there, food is such a thing of joy for, for many people. And, and for some people it has the adverse, you know, kind of quality to it where, um, if maybe something in your life isn't feeling joyful, the connection to food can kind of be like, well, you know, I'm not into food. You know, I mean, I found it's also it, yeah. a lot of fuss. It's also a lot of effort yes. and fuss. And we, we love that because it's grounding and, as you say, ritualistic um, and meditative. But it also can be a lot of extra time for some people at different yeah. points of their life. Yeah, and she's living alone and she's 76 years old. And um, she definitely appreciates the convenience of having her healthy food delivered to her house. And, and yet... You know, every time I talk to her, she's preparing something massive in the kitchen to take over to my brother and sister-in-law's home for mm-hmm. Tuesday night dinners, you know, so yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it's, it's funny. Yeah, I, I recently kind of had this thing with just feeling like I live alone too. You know, I'm 37, I'm single, I live alone and I do love to cook and, you know, we started off talking about the ritual of, you know cooking and having it be kind of a place of peace, but it's also like I've kind of reached my own point where I'm like almost like forcing myself to eat because I'm just tired of eating alone, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I know that's like, com- that's a privileged place to stand from being like, I'm just tired of eating alone. So many people are food insecure, but just within my own life, you know, so I can relate to that feeling sometimes, you know, the ritual of things and the preparing of meals and the, even the self care part of it can become, you know, overwhelming. But absolutely, it's interesting absolutely. the d- different relationships we have with it's it. It's true. It happens our with lives. a lot of my clients who are elderly say that too, or alone. Mm. You know, say that yeah. they've mm-hmm. lost their spouses and they just feel it's not worth it to cook a meal because they can't share it with somebody. So that makes sense, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. So Kimberly, when you were around eighteen, you know, we did a little bit of a pre-interview with you, and so, and you know, obviously, your research do a lot. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when you were around eighteen. You mentioned that your father um, passed away really suddenly in a car crash. Can you kind of tell us a bit about that? First of all, I'm so sorry. What a really difficult and traumatic way to lose a parent. Um, but yeah. Well, thank you. And I know the two of you share that story as well, um, your husband and your father. Yeah, you know, I think I may have written this in our pre-interview, but I, I think my biggest concern prior to my dad's death was pimples and plies, you know, (laughs) something of that nature. So when that happened, 
we were on our way to Mexico for a spring break family vacation. I was um, a couple months prior to my graduation in high school. And my father, like I mentioned, was a heart surgeon. And he was at a nurse's retirement party um, the night prior. And he actually was dressed up as Willie Nelson, of all things, for this retirement party because he and his two partners <laughs> um, were also, they, were, they got up on stage and sang for this nurse. Um, I think Julio Iglesias was another, I'm not sure what the third partner dressed up as, but anyway, he was supposed to be home by 2 a.m. for us to make the drive to Milwaukee, um, and that's a two-hour drive, and when he didn't show up at 2 a.m., and I got up with my packed bags, my mom was ready, and we were meeting my brother in Mexico, because he was already in university um, in Colorado, and uh, she just, she said, I'm pissed, <laughs> so he, he's a big boy, he can figure it out. And this was, they had a pretty tumultuous marriage, so she was tired of commitments being broken, and, and she said, you know, no, I'm done. And even in her words, she says, that might have been the first time I ever said I'm done. I can't. I, she said no. So it's pretty profound in her story to feel the consequences of her saying no, because the consequences of her saying no was that my father got home perhaps a half an hour after we left and quickly packed his bag. Um, he had a just enough time, though, to tape a cartoon on the lower uh, left corner of the mirror in the bathroom. And the cartoon was, it was probably from the New York Times, and it said, it was a picture of a little guy climbing a mountain and it said um, something about uh, so oh gosh I'm totally spacing but it was something about uh, life is a, a constant climbing of a mountain too bad the batteries aren't included so it was a really bizarre thing to discover anyway so he he packed his bag and got on the road and he still had a high blood alcohol level from the party. He wasn't a drunk by any means, but he certainly could, he liked extremes. <laughs> um, he always said, take everything in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> so this was his including moderation <laughs> evening. Yeah. And he hit a Mack truck head on um, about, uh, I think it was about 45 minutes from the Milwaukee airport in a little town called Fredonia. But we didn't know this until we got to Mexico. So um, we had a little napkin with a phone number on it and we had to get through customs. And I didn't think anything was wrong. I was still thinking about, you know, the pimple on my chin. And um, <laughs> my mom, I don't think she, she was just angry. And so it, uh, it, the phone number, once we got through customs, my mom called the phone number and it was the coroner's office in Fredonia. So that's when everything changed. A sudden tragic loss, my goodness. Yeah, it's extremely sudden. And you know, you had mentioned too, you know, talking about your kind of early connections with food and grief, um, about how your father used to bake bread and make these really interesting breads. And you had mentioned a saffron bread. Could you, could you share that story with us? Because that really 
um, really stuck with me, just the kind of imagery of the bread, that very special bread, and then how it felt to come back to it. Yeah, well, I am so, I mean, just a little on the side, I am so grateful that you're doing this show because you made me dig into those memories. And oh. it was so precious to think about mm. that. Um, my dad got one of those, you know, those bread makers of the 90s, instant bread makers, but he was really into it. And he, he loved um, making his own ghee. And so he would always boil a bunch of butter down and put the ghee on the counter and then make chocolate cherry bread and saffron bread. And that was our favorite, the saffron bread. So he had made a loaf of this beautiful, bright yellow saffron bread um, the couple days prior to the vacation in Mexico. And um, so it was, had been slightly eaten. Um, and we, you know, you have to eat the saffron bread with the butter on it. And he was, he was a breakfast guy like I was. My mom was not into breakfast food. So he would often, um, before he'd run off to the hospital, he'd slice me a big slice of bread and slather the ghee on it. Um, and if he had to rush out before I even was up, he would often leave a little note next to it and just say, I love you, Kimmy. Or um, he... <laughs> He also would sometimes make smoothies and because he thought it was funny, he would leave a, a milk bone at the bottom of my smoothie. So he was, <laughs> he I was, love he was that. a little prankster. Perfect. That's right up my alley. <laughs> um, but he, he made me feel special and loved. Um, the fact that he would take these little moments to, to care for me before he ran off to the hospital to care for, to save lives. Um, oh my goodness. So anyway, he had made a loaf of that saffron bread and um, we went to Mexico and all of that. The We flew right back that same day, obviously. I mean, there was that weird, irrational moment where we were all like, well, should we stay and have a vacation? You know, I mean, gr- grief does strange things to your brain. So Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that is such a traumatic, unbelievably unexpected things yeah. happen in such a that strange way. you can't way. take in, right? You can't take yeah. it all in. Yeah. yeah, we could not take it all in. I went in immediately into denial. I think I am the popsicle variety of fight, flight, and freeze. I am a definite freezer. So I went into d- denial and um, was convinced the entire way home. We even drove right past the accident in a, on a snowy um, April evening in Wisconsin and pulled the car over and got out of the car and saw the tracks. And um, I still was in denial. I thought his car would be parked in the garage when we got home. So um, when we did pull into the garage and it was empty, I, I don't remember much here. I do remember that the flight attendant had given us some sleeping pills. She had known what had happened and so she sort of kindly offered them to my mom um and we all slept together in their bed that night um and the next morning I woke up and I saw that loaf of saffron bread on the counter and you know saffron has a really strong smell and I wanted so badly to have a piece of that and I I don't remember if I did or I didn't, I just remember the smell smelling like death to me. And I couldn't, 
separate those two anymore. Um, for and still to this day, I have a, a little jar of saffron in our my herbs cabinet, and it just it takes me right back to that day. And I do love the taste of it. Um, so it, it it also makes there's this strange thing that you probably have experienced with other guests where after my dad died I wanted to eat more of the foods that he liked to eat I wanted I even did the smoothie with the milk bone in the bottom one morning you know um and I and I it was my attempt to try to bring him back and and yet it made me it didn't fulfill me it made me more hungry it's so bittersweet it's so bittersweet Mm -hmm. yeah it can be really yeah Go ahead, Bobby. I was just saying, it's it's our longing to continue the bonds, to continue the connection, you know, not just to to wish, make believe that it isn't true, but also just to keep connection with them. Yeah. So that's so, such a powerful, powerful story. You know, and I it's wanted an embodied to... connection. Sorry to yes. interrupt, but it's no. an embodied connection because I was going into these fantasy, magical thinking worlds of oh, he's closer to me um, now because he's just in spirit and all of that, but. The embodied connection was what was missing. So food was a, a way to try to make that happen. Absolutely. I remember after my dad died, my my in my family, uh, my dad's side of the family, um, we would always make pizza rustica, which is this like Italian like layered, it's like ricotta and salami and prosciutto and bread. And it's like this layered, almost like bread lasagna thing. Anyway, it's very decadent. But uh, my my grandfather would always make it. My uncles made it. My dad used to make it. And so one of my uncles made it for Thanksgiving. It's not typically a Thanksgiving thing, but he brought some over just because it was very sweet of him. You know, it was like a kind gesture. And I brought some of it the next day. And, you know, my dad was cremated, but I buried a little bit of his ashes near my grandparents' grave. So I have somewhere to go to visit him. So the next day I brought some of the Pizza Rustica and like buried it there. Because I just was like... I was having the same kind of, you know, thing. I, I want to talk a little bit more about magical thinking, but that like, well, here's, here's something, here's something I can, like an offering I can give you. Like, so, you know, you're more real. We're more connected. Here's your favorite thing. Here's some, you know, like, and food is such an incredible. But like, they're all rituals. It comes down to the rituals again. I think food right, becomes yeah. a ritual a way of connecting. And right. we were so fascinated, both of us, because you talked a lot about magical thinking and it brought up so many different feelings. So tell us more about what you feel magical thinking is and how it connected to your grief. Oh, it's a big one for me. I'm still unwinding those patterns in my life. Um, I needed to believe... Um, well, it's it was hard for me to come to terms with the reality of my pain. So let's start there, because the reality of my pain and what I felt, how that felt in my body was too much, too big. So I, magical thinking was a coping mechanism. Um, And for example, my dad died on Highway 43 on April 3rd. He was born in 1943. Um, he died at 5.43 a.m. There were all these weird 43s. My dorm room at college three months later was 143. The exit to college was one. So, you know, this this 43 thing was really bizarre in the beginning. And then I remember my brother received a letter from a friend 
Um, and she signed it 43. And he said, what? That's crazy. What's this? Like, we've got this 43. And she said, oh, don't you know that's shorthand for love you? Because there's four letters in love and three letters in you. And so, of course, with my, I am, you know, I have a PhD in magical thinking. And so I think this is my father's way of telling me that he loves me or that I'm on the right path or that this choice that I just made was the good choice. I have done so many things in my life that weren't based on my intuition of what was right or wrong or what I wanted um, for my own life, but because the number 43 intervened. I needed to believe, I didn't want to have accountability for my own decisions. I wanted the universe or my father to tell me what to do. So that, um, like I said, is something I'm still really unwinding. <laughs> so it was so it's a blessing and a curse. You know, most things that in life are both so powerful and so strong on the underside of them. They have a weakness to them, but it doesn't negate. It doesn't negate it. It's just the duality of it. So I imagine that it helped you so much that that's part of what grief is about accepting the reality of the loss. And that was just too hard to believe. So of course, you know, we have to have magical thinking in those times, of course, until we're ready to handle the feelings and the truth. Totally. I think also it's interesting. I have just something I just want to quickly add to that, which I think is just something I've been circling around recently, because I also have a lot of magical thinking, thinking surrounding my father's death. And for me, it particularly pertains to like relationships. And so I'll meet somebody and I'm like, dad, I need some help here, you know, or I'll have, you know, sometimes it has like to do with career stuff, but it really circles around relationships a lot for me. And I'll ask him for help. Like, is this the right kind of thing I should be doing? Or, you know, I need some help, you know, finding someone who's kind and good and, and, and just give me a boost here. And so I'll find times when I think he does or there's signs. And like, I've been, you know, very interested in the past and a lot recently in, in studying like the Jungian theory of synchronicity versus, you know, the kind of more scientific explanation for synchronicity. Um, and something I kind of had a breakthrough recently is like, I feel like in this particular way, why I think I attach magical thinking to my dad, helping me meet someone. And maybe you have thought that about, you know, your continuing relationship with your dad after his passing is for me, like, I feel like my dad owes me that. I think I feel like the ways in which I look for him to help me are like is unfinished business with that. Like, Hey, I have maybe a little bit of a struggle with relationships because of my relationship with my dad. Like it was contentious in a way that like, didn't set me up for being, having all the utility I need as an adult in an adult relationship. And so I personally think that I look for that continuing bond as something I'm owed because that's something I was lacking when he was alive. And I guess I'm just wondering if in your own kind of magical thinking uh, with the numerology and, and the number 43, or, or do you think it had anything to do with unfinished business maybe between you and your dad? Yes, that's a really powerful insight. And absolutely, um, you know, the, typically the masculine or the father figure is the one that pushes us into the world and helps guide us with our career paths. And I was always very career driven and knew that from a young age that I wanted to be a doctor, just like my dad um, but, and so when he died, that, that really pushed that even further for me. Um, I wanted to believe that he could heal through me. Um, so, okay, dad, you know, he was a profound healer and not just by sewing up hearts. 
Um, but he was the doctor that would spend way too much time doing his rounds and kneeling at the bedside. And, um, and he had over 400 people show up at his memorial service in this little small town in Wisconsin. And a lot of them we didn't even know because he was a very magnanimous human being. And so I believed that he was going to direct me on my career path. And even though I felt some of that prior to the death, I did feel like I needed his guidance um, (laughs) post-mortem to to make that happen. And am I a doctor now? No. (laughs) Did I pursue it? Yes, I pursued it once and I dropped out. I pursued it twice and I dropped out. Um, I, you know, I did everything I possibly could to pursue that path, even though everything in my gut and my heart knew that it wasn't right for me, but I believed that it was right for my dad. You know, sudden death is unfinished business. It represents unfinished business, right? So it's a powerful conversation. We'll we'll probably all continue to think about magical thinking. You know, I believe in magical thinking. I think that we need that for a period of time. I call it turtle medicine. And I think when we first have to face a reality that's so harsh and horrible, we have to go into our turtle shell and stay in as long as we need to and then come out when we can. So I'm wondering, Kimberly, you mentioned that you did some bereavement um, volunteering after that. And I wondered, was it the Dougie Center that you went to? Yes, it was the Dougie oh, Center. I know Donna Sherman, and I, I was oh, so yeah. glad to hear that. Her work continues all over the country. As a matter of fact, it continues right near us here in New York. There's a, a wonderful Dougie Center. And then she wrote oh. that book, Never the Same, which is about um, children that lose parents. And I wonder how um, that concept, do you think that's a reality that somehow you're so changed that you are never the same? You lose a parent? Oh, Absolutely. Um, within a heartbeat, we change. Um, I had a boyfriend in college whose father died of uh, a bad meatball in Bangladesh, uh, hepatitis. And um, I bonded with him, obviously, in college because he was one of the first people that I knew that had lost a father. So I was gravitated towards him. Anyway, his he was 12 when his dad died and he remembers at the memorial service he was a half Vietnamese half Argentinian and someone put uh, their hand on his shoulder and said you're the man of the house now and he was 12 years old Um, so uh, yes it it changes us forever grief is something that never goes away Um, it is a bit like it's an initiation yeah that's a very, very interesting and beautiful way of putting it. It is an initiation into a club that you don't want to be a part of, but when you are, it feels like, I don't know, it's a growth, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a growth. And I feel like, you know, those big growing times and learning moments in our lives, like, wouldn't it be nice if they could happen in the ways we wish they could like, Oh, I hope I have a huge growing moment when I win the lottery or, you know, uh, meet the person in my dreams. But those, those real growing moments often come from tragic experiences and painful experiences. Going into yeah. the fire and, and just, and, yeah, the descent. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to touch quickly back to the concept of magical thinking and just, talk a little bit about how because it kind of plays in I think to 
you know, I don't want to skip right over to your work now because there's some things I want to talk about in between that I think are important. But, um, you know, I think it's just such an interesting balance how we are as people to find the right balance of magic and hope, right? And I've been thinking a lot about hope recently this year because, I mean, this is a year when so many people could have lost hope. And I mean, that's that year is is every year for a lot of people, right? So this year we're experiencing, you know, trauma and grief on a more, you know, on a larger scale, but like, you know, people experience lack of hope and, and, and experience trauma all the time. And I think like one of the only ways other than, you know, food and water and sleep that we manage to get through from a beginning of a life to an end of a life is having some sense of hope. And for people, it's so different. For some people, it is God. And for some people, it is just like, you know, little tiny bits of joy. And for some people who have experienced like big trauma and and loss, it's just hope that like, you know, uh, this person, you know, you look for the, the synchronicities because that's hope, right? That means in some way, this person is still kind of with me. And if they're still kind of with me, there's something beyond what we see. You know what I mean? Like all of this makes sense. Like just your brain and your heart trying to like organize your feelings and your fears and stuff. So I I don't know. I mean, where you, where do you fall on that after kind of, because you're mentioning like that, you know, you had magical thinking for a while. You didn't trust your intuition. Where do you, where do you put magical thinking now? What is its importance to you? Like, how do you place it in your life? How do you feel about it? That's, it's a question that has been very much up for me. Um, my actual, I, I send prompts to this unfixed community of people with chronic illness every month. And the question of this month is what, what are your hopes for this year? And hope and dreams are a really hard one for people with chronic illness um, or perhaps anybody that's gone through trauma. Um, but I know for me, hope has become a, a toxic word and I had to abandon it for quite a long time and and that was around the death of the the magical thinking as well because with hope it it left open so much possibility for my father to to not show up and you know the number of times that I asked him to be there for me in the scariest, most frightening moments of this neurological condition I have now, that I, I mean, not just my father, I prayed to every deity, you know, that ever existed. And there's a point where you start to feel like, well, A, I either have really bad karma, or B, nobody really gives a shit, you know, or nobody's listening, or I'm not doing it right. Um, that I'm not doing it right was a big one for me because of my family was also very new agey self-help. You know, if you, if you think it, you can be it, that kind of, so I, I, I really, really live in the other end of that spectrum now, which is healthy for me. And I'm not saying that's healthy for everybody, but for me, I, I need to really just look at what reality is. And for me, hope um, or not what reality is, but what I can touch and see and feel and really truly believe within my own heart. Um, because otherwise, I, 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 I'm taking a step outside of myself. 
Um, I need to feel my own flesh and bones and skin and my own responses to the world. And, and, and it's not awesome feeling. And I need to feel that not awesomeness, um, if that makes any sense, because that makes me feel here in my body instead of right. a thousand light years away with my dad. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that's very, 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 very profound. You know, if I could add something to this, it's been a subject I've been interested in always. And I did, um, I'm a gestalt therapist, and when I did my final um, thesis on it, it was called From Fear to Faith, Trusting the Process. And I guess I always interchanged, you know, faith with hope. And I and I interviewed a lot of people. My best friend was actually a midwife, and we both talked about birth and death, and we talked about the difference between, not the difference, but the similarities between feeling such fear in the birth process and such fear in the dying process, and then moving towards to this place of faith. So I interviewed all these people, and everyone said something they had faith in something different. But ultimately, I think it came down to faith in ourselves. So that's what I'm hearing you say, Kimberly, that it's what you've come down to is not some magical thought of what faith or hope is, but belief in yourself. Mm. Is that is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, and, and belief in the, the suffering, there's love in the suffering. I b- belief in my own capacity to exist in the pain and the discomfort and the sadness and the anger, all of that, the, the ugly stuff or the stuff that we want to push away, believe in myself enough to know that that's okay too and to hold myself there. Like that feels... And, and, you know, hope is just sort of a, an exit to the right off of those experiences that I was so afraid of having in my body for so long. So, I mean, even last night I'm laying in bed and I knew we had this conversation today. So I'm feeling the butterflies in my stomach. And it's just another opportunity now to allow these big feelings to be present with my, within my, my body. Um, and it's like his big feelings. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, it is okay. It is okay. So, you know, you had this, you know, experience of loss with your dad and then you went to college and shortly after uh, you came, you were diagnosed with Graves' disease, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And can you tell us a little bit about Graves' disease for those yeah. of us who aren't Graves' familiar? disease is a, a autoimmune hyperthyroidism. So, um it typically is a condition where, well, I read somewhere, and I think I told you this, that people often relate Graves' disease to um, grief. And I don't know where I read that, but um, unresolved grief and Graves' disease go hand in hand. And I doubt that would be in a medical textbook, but it stuck with me when I read it. And so this was about was diagnosed about four years after my dad died. And basically, Graves' disease, your metabolism speeds up um, to the point where you're, I'm, you know, my heart rate is, resting heart rate is 135 beats per minute. I'm shaking all the time, eating, 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 and losing weight. It's just, it just feels like everything is, has been sped up. Um, and this came out of nowhere. And, um, I was actually thinking about this last night in relationship to um, the food that I was eating after my dad died and how I wanted it to make me feel to, to feel close to him. And it left me feeling hungrier. And I thought, isn't it interesting then that my body develops 
a condition four years later where I'm always hungry. Hungry, the hunger, <laughs> it yeah. Is so always so hungry. The body keeps the score. As, and, and I guess we can't say. deny an autoimmune diseases and the stress response. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. do you make that correlation. Yes. Of uh, the tremendous stress that you went through in those years and developing an autoimmune disease. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That left you feeling hungry. <laughs> left me feeling hungry. You had mentioned like your body feeling like you were running. Like moving faster to try to be with your dad again. Yeah, I'm it paraphrasing, was, you know, but you said something. I don't know if I consciously would have said that, but I do believe very like you and the reading about Jung, and I believe the unconscious has a very strong pull in our lives, and um, and perhaps more so for even people like me who ignore it or have had ignored it so then I get the the unconscious comes by in a the form of a two by four clobbing clobbering me over the head um so yes I do think that there was a speeding up of this life like let's get let's get through this so that we can be with dad again Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And so kind of, you know, to touch on the the metaphor of being flogged over the head, about 20 years later, you were in a bike accident where you were doored. And then as a result of that, that accident, you spent some time in bed and you decided to, can you, you decided to check and see if you're uh, upon a suspicion you had that maybe your dad wasn't your real dad. Can you mm-hmm. t- talk to us about that a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, when my dad was still alive, my he encouraged my mom. I remember I was 17 years old, and he asked me to, to, to go for a walk with my mom. She had something to tell me. So during that, com- that walk, my mom said, do you know there's a chance that your father isn't your father? Um, and she told me this story about a one-night stand she had with a musician in the Mariposa Music Festival in, in uh, Canada in 1974. And... Um, but she said, the chances are so slim and you're just like your father. And she, my mother is very good at delivering um, the message with conviction. And, and she's very confident and very intelligent. And so it was easy for me and for my brother as well to always just go, well, sounds good to me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so so I, I also was a teenager and I was like, what? It really didn't even register. It did not register for me. I don't remember having a conversation with my dad about it. I've looked through journals. I never wrote about it. I heard it and then buried. So, um, and she also didn't remember his last name. Um, So it just disappeared. Um, And it probably got buried even further when my dad died a year later. Um, It wasn't until... The month before the bicycle accident that my mom and I were walking on a beach in Mexico and she just remembered his last name all of a sudden. She was retelling the story of this fling with this young man. Um, and again, back up, my, my dad did know about this experience and she told him about it the next day. And he really didn't have much reason to be angry because he'd already had multiple affairs. And, you know, so it was the seventies. Sure. <laughs> and, sure. um, so, but we were, my mom and I were walking on the beach in Mexico when I was 39 and she remembered his last name and it stuck with me. And on the layover home, I Googled his name and put in, she told, she told me he had a 
television show on public um, broadcasting station in Wisconsin where he sang to children um, about the history of Wisconsin. Um, he had three eBay albums or albums on eBay. So really? it popped right up. And I oh. saw one of the pictures of him um, on his albums and I, it, my heart stopped. It was me. So I actually pulled the picture up for my husband when I, um, when he picked me up at the airport and I said, who does this look like? Not giving him any context. And he's like, well, it looks like it could be your dad. And that was enough for me to, uh, uh, need, I needed to pursue something. So the week prior to the bicycle accident, I actually was working long days at a studio And between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. before I had to hop in the car, I was doing my Google searches to figure out more about this family. And I had no DNA test yet, but I had a really strong suspicion that this was my father. Um, I found out very quickly that he had died in a sailing accident when I was 10 years old. Um, He had as a brother, a filmmaker brother, he has two sisters, he has a huge, lovely, loving family, and they were broken hearted when he disappeared. Um, He was just a young man with a promising life and died on Lake Michigan. So, or disappeared. It's it's a complicated story that I need to write someday, but they never did find him. Um, So, they only they did find a book on his bookshelf that was about um, how to fake your death, <laughs> and he had written a story about a sailor who faked his death. Wow! Um, so who knows? To be continued. We wow. might have to. <laughs> but <laughs> we'll do anyway, a catch up about um, that. But another loss for you, another transformation for yeah. you. A huge one. So the bicycle accident happened you know, during that period, I was on bed rest for two months and I decided to pursue a DNA test with my brother. And of course I had these suspicions, but I never really believed that I would get an email from 23andMe that said my brother was my half brother, but sure enough, that's what came back. And I, I, I don't even know if I would describe it as loss as much as an incomplete destabilization, um, complete and utter destabilization from my identity that still has me feeling breathless when I start to talk about it. Um, It scared me to a level that I had never been scared before. And... um, yeah. Can you talk about that for a second? Uh, when you say it scared you, to like in what, in what way did it scare you? It scared me because um, I didn't know myself anymore. I, 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 and I certainly didn't know how to grieve this other person that I never even knew. And, and, and then, you know, of course, my coping mechanism is to go to magical thinking. So then I'm thinking, well, now all I have to do is learn everything about Charlie and, and then become like him. And it, it just, it's the, de- the level of destabilization just really, really scared me. It was a physical, physical fear. Right. Yeah. Right. 
loss of your identity and um, a loss of what you knew and um, your attachments. This it's just un unbelievable that you, you went through this as well. So I can identify with this. I mean, when my dad passed away, uh, two months later, I got a call from somebody or a message on Instagram, and, and they were basically like, "I'm your long lost brother." What? And at first, yeah, and at first I was like, "Okay, I don't believe this." You know, this like this is some really weird kind of scam. Um, but long story short, it it ended up really being my long lost brother. And my dad had had a kid when he was nineteen and never told me the about year it before and, I met him. Wow. I, ne yeah. I never knew about it. My, my exactly parents like were divorced. Zara. Bobby exactly. and my dad were divorced for like 20 or 10, 20 years before he died. But, um, but yeah, neither of us ever knew about it. And uh, it was a kid he had had with a girlfriend he had had in high school. But anyway, so I can relate in a small way to the very strange feeling. I'm sure it's much more bizarre to find out that you know your father your real father is not your father but in some small way I can identify with that feeling yeah of like yeah weird. It, it's it's very strange yeah I mean we just sort of take certain things about ourselves for granted we look in the mirror and we see our father's face or we we look at our siblings and we think this is our sibling and there's just certain things we don't question and then and those are very basic things that are part of how we construct our identity yeah so it is destabilizing yeah, yeah. that's a like great the, word the and ground then, gets pulled out from under you and then shortly after you developed uh, another chronic illness a rare chronic illness that is also to use the same word very destabilizing can you tell us a little bit about the the chronic yeah. illness that you well had? i they're all it's all connected isn't it yeah. <laughs> i mean it's isn't it yeah. uh it's perfect that i was feeling very destabilized and then my brain decided to be very destabilized. Yeah. Um, MDDS, mal de debarkment syndrome, I think was first identified in people who disembarked from a cruise ship or a boat or a long train ride and never got their land legs back. So it's that experience. And now they it's rare so most physicians that I was going to to try to tell me what was wrong with me um, were just you know shaking their head or calling it a concussion because I had you know cracked my helmet during the bicycle accident um, but when it didn't go away it didn't get better it was actually getting worse um, it it I I didn't know it's what I had it took three and a half years for me to get a proper diagnosis. So I really was living with just a lot of uncertainty and that's, you know, why the, the hope disappeared <laughs> during that period. Um, I just needed to figure out how to live um, and get through each day. And my body became a prison for me. Um, and as with other people that I've now connected with that have MDDS, it is a, a really frightening experience to not be able to escape. It's 24-7. So laying down, closing your eyes, it just doesn't go away. Right now I'm talking to you and it's, you know, a good three foot, three foot seas type of day, which is, is a good one. Wow. Um, so that's the metaphor like you use? You use the yeah. metaphor of the waves? Yeah, I do. I do. It, it helps because it really does feel like I'm standing on a broken dock or I'm standing on the, sh the deck of a ship. Um, 
It also, the floor drops out on some really more difficult days. Like often after a longer Zoom conversation, I'll get up from the computer and it will feel like a, if you've been in a bouncy castle, it's sort of like you take steps and it feels like the floor is dropping out. Um, the vestibular, and I, I, because I don't have a, a specialist that is um, helping me through this, actually in a couple of weeks, I'm working with a neurologist in Texas who is specializes in MDDS. So I'm still figuring this out myself. Um, but as far as I understand, it's not a vestibular disorder. It is the brain adapts. And often with people that develop it spontaneously, like I did, it is followed um, or it is preceded by a period of heightened anxiety. So um, I 100% fit into that category. I think I was having, um, when I discovered the DNA test, I fell into a protracted panic attack that probably lasted for a couple of years. Yeah, that um, makes sense. The body reveals. Yep. Yeah. The you know, body reveals. Yeah. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was listening to your interview on the Unfixed podcast. And did you say that when you're moving in like a vehicle is the mm-hmm. only time when you don't feel it? Yeah. Kind of? It so, goes completely away. Yeah. Completely it kind of, I, it kind of led me to this hypothesis. And I don't know what you think about this, but between that and the... um. Graves disease with like, you know, feeling the need to like keep moving faster and keep moving. I'm just, I just felt compelled to look at the correlation between movement and um, some kind of piece, but maybe not the exact right piece that you're looking for. But there's something, it seems to me, and this is obviously just such an ephemeral kind of, you know, theory, but like, you know, your need for movement in processing your grief and 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 you know does that resonate with you at all that is such a good insight and I mean 100% yes um I I was just writing about this the other day when I dropped out of medical school and went into Chinese medicine school I did two and a half years there I was always a straight A student and all of that, but I failed my Qigong class, literally failed my Qigong class because I could not stand still. It drove me batshit crazy. I would start sweating. I would feel hyperthyroid again. I would just sweating and shaking and heart racing. Um, I have been a meditator since I was in my late teens. Um, but now since the MDDS, I, I, I move when I meditate. meditation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know what I call it. I mean, it just move around and wiggle and shake. And I think that's part of the reason why Zoom, I have challenges with that. Because right now you can't see me, but I'm rocking all over the place and moving my <laughs> kind of, you know, just processing the experience through my body. You know, I thought of another metaphor as you were talking about that. I was thinking about, Zara, when you were young and you used to cry, and many parents do this, you put them in the car. And you do that because the movement helps them calm down. And I just thought about you. You just have such, so much grief in your life, and so much grief in your in you. And it just seems like um, that movement, you know, can can be calming and um, soothing. I really love what you two are saying. <laughs> I do. Wow. I do. And it's um, you know it, it brought me back to the waves. And grief is so much like 
waves and sometimes they're just little waves lapping up on the shore and sometimes it's you know these giant tsunamis and and it feels like the more I can allow my body to experience those as if I were just you know doing a dead man's float in the middle of the ocean the more those emotions can move through me instead of pummel me (laughs) totally absolutely we were both so um um, in, in honoring a few in the work that you've been doing on Unfixed. I would love you to tell us more about it. It's such a wonderful project and you're connecting people and um, the uh, just talking, tell us more what it means to you and why you called it Unfixed, the work that you do. Yeah, well, I really um, was very cure-based, fix-it-based. Um, growing up in my new age family, I believed that everything could had a fix. And, um, and so again, going back to that unwillingness to hold the messy emotions, um, that was not an option for me. So fixing, 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 fixing. So of course, when MDDS hit I was on a a fix it path for about two and a half years and even moved in with my mom for seven months in Boulder Colorado to pursue all the alternatives and I mean I went to every doctor there to see if I could find an answer Um, and I realized the fixing was like a Chinese finger trap for me Um, and it took a while for me to realize that but the harder I tried to fix it the harder it was for me to release um, myself from the experience and I started it started really in a more of a meditation where I would be laying on my back at 4 a.m in the morning and feeling the waves and feeling the bed bounce up and down and I just started to practice allowing the experience to be there and all the anxiety that came up with it and all the um, discomfort of that movement. Instead of resisting it, I just allowed it. And when I allowed it, there was sort of a, um, almost like a dual, I, I don't know, maybe I had a psychotic break, <laughs> but it felt like there was a part of me that could, that was eternally still, that could hold the experience. It didn't make the rocking go away, but my perception could shift to this other part of myself that was aware of it all happening. And the awareness was always still, always, always, always still. So I kind of used that idea of the Chinese finger trap and, and like wondering if are other people out there wanting to uh, are wa- wanting to understand what it's like to not pursue cures constantly and to uh, wrap up our identities and being fixed. And I didn't know anybody because you go on Instagram or go on you know the media and everybody's got a green juice for you or a yoga pose for you. or um, But it didn't take long for me to find people that were living with chronic illness and not you know, turning their backs on a cure by any means, but certainly finding ways to thrive within the experiences of suffering. Um, I love that. I love that you put it that way, to thrive within the experiences of suffering. And I think that is very true for people who are experiencing grief and loss as well, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm smiling here because, Kimberly, I was uh, doing a class once for bereaved parents who had lost their children, and I handed out the Chinese puzzles to everybody. And I was trying to teach them about the concept of pain plus resistance equals suffering. Oh. And so it's exactly, I was just, <laughs> when, you, when you said that, it's just the, the using this concept for grief is actually exactly what it's about. It's the Buddhist mindfulness approach to allowing feelings to just be, and the more we fight them, the more we suffer. Yep, absolutely. And even when those feelings are physical pain, you think, well, we can't, that stops there. Once you get to the physical body, no, but it really, you still can even allow it with pain. Exactly. What John Kabat-Zinn taught us this because as a researcher at the University of Massachusetts, he was working with people that had chronic pain in the 70s. And so that his concept of using mindfulness with physical pain is it's just a perfect metaphor. I use the metaphor of physical pain to help people with grief because I tell them it's something you can't control. It's something you can't change. I tell them, what if you have to live with something that you literally can't change? So what are your choices? Yeah. And what you're telling us is that you've learned to accept it and honor it and and have, yeah. have self-compassion. MDDS has been that teacher for me, hands down, because it never goes away. And I, I, it, it, it just wrecked me for those first couple of years trying to make it go away. And I, it, it was such a relief when I finally just, it's not, and I still hate it. And not saying that I don't hate it, but it was such a relief to re- relax my grip around um, the experience. Really, and exactly those words that you just said, I feel like could so ease. And you know, when we say grief. Grief is about people experience about grief about a lot of things. But just thinking about someone who's in grief because of a loss or a death or anything, really. But like just being able to sit in that and it never goes right so like a chronic illness never goes away it's a pain and a suffering that is with you forever but being able to thrive as you said within that it's just that's exactly how it feels to be really processing any kind of grief and I feel like finally coming to a point where we can accept that and normalize that you know we talk a lot about like the word normalize is very much part of the you know vernacular of the day and that's a great thing but like we really think of what that means is like truly accepting that like life is there a lot of suffering you know and it's a lot of joy and where do you and what do you do with that information you know yes what do you do with the information that like you're you will be in pain that there is unfairness all about and that you still want to leave this like finite amount of time that you have to see and smell and touch and taste with something in and and what do you do with that given the fact that life is so fucking unfair right so often you know um and I think it's beautiful and so what you've done you know we watched all the um episodes of that you've done in this unfixed docuseries which is like so incredible and the people who come on to share their stories of chronic illness and it's just it's beautiful and like part of what you're saying about like you know, the, the ethos of unfixed, I mean, you you can waste, I don't want want to say waste, but you can spend so much time focusing on the, you know, on the fixing part. That's the serenity prayer on the things that you can't change. Right. That you miss the living part, you know, and it's natural and, and understandable to want to do that. But I feel like what you're putting out there and the message you're giving is allowing people to 
to have a lot of more a lot more time and to be able to savor their time in a different way. Do you feel like that was part of your mission? Yeah. Yeah, the living part is really rich. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think we miss a lot of the gems along the way when we're bouncing back and forth to doctor's offices and chasing this cure and abandoning ourselves in the process. I mean, I'll speak for myself, but I was abandoning myself by saying, I will be this way when I am this way. And, you know, here now we have these 20 subjects in the Unfixed documentary and they are just beautiful spirits. And they are that way because of what they are contending with moment to moment to moment and holding those experiences. And I'm not, again, I always am careful. Like there, we, we're not putting a fancy bow on a pile of shit. We're not saying, you know, let's just think positively about our experiences. But we are seeing that within these really heavy chapters or long durations of our lives there are there are a lot of virtues that come that emerge um yeah it reminds me of the story that we told in one of our podcasts are you familiar kimberly with the story of the strawberry the buddhist story about the strawberry oh the cliff the tigers yeah yeah yes (laughs) just very briefly not to take too much of hearing about you but it's the story of a, a, a woman who's trapped by tigers and she sees tigers above her and they're about to, to decimate her. So she sees a cliff and a vine and she grabs onto the vine and she's, oh, I've made it. I'm going to be okay. And she looks down and underneath the cliff, there's more tigers. And so she's just sitting there on this vine and she looks over and she sees this strawberry. So what do you think she does? She eats the luscious strawberry and appreciates every single moment of it. Mm-hmm. I love that story. And <laughs> I have a, I have to follow it with a story that I learned about my uh, biological father. He was a poet, very beautiful, poetic man. And he told his brother a story about um, one time he was playing in a small bar somewhere in Michigan, I think. And a man thought that his girlfriend was flirting with him during one of his sets. And so afterwards, the man followed him out to the back and decided to beat the crap out of him. And Charlie was on the ground. He was decided he was not going to fight this. And his face was pressed down into the pavement and the snow was falling and it was falling right in front of the street lamp. And he thought it was one of the most beautiful moments of his life while this man was just, you know, throwing his foot into his ribs and the fact that I just, I, I, ah, that is my father. <laughs> because I have been trying to find beauty in the painful moments for as long as I can remember. Yeah, I agree. It's funny, the other day I went, on New Year's Day, I just felt compelled. I'm someone who really does not like cold weather or feeling cold at all, <laughs> which is funny because I've lived in New York my whole life. But um, I just woke up on New Year's Day and I was like, I need to go swimming. I want to do the polar bear club. <laughs> and I went and jumped in the ocean at Robert Moses. And I felt it so much in that moment. I'm like, this is the most uncomfortable, painful thing. <laughs> and it's so beautiful. And I'm so glad I did it. I like couldn't wow. catch my breath, but in a good way, you know? Yeah. And I think like 
again, to use the word normalizing, but normalizing the duality in opposing feelings that can exist at the same time. Because I think just the societally, we are encouraged to believe that things are all the way good or all the way bad. And that goes for a lot of things that people are all the way good or all the way bad, that anything exists in this, like in these extremes. And the reality is, is that it is a, it is a mix. It is a beautiful smoothie with a milk bone at the bottom, right? Like <laughs> but really, like it's such a, it's such an interesting, complicated uh. thing to be a person and to be alive. And then, you know, I also just think one of the most important things about what you're doing with Unfix is that, you know, I think um, illness and loss of, you know, your body, loss of your way of living is such a fear for people. And, it, you know, I was listening, uh, like kind of binge listening to the podcast yesterday and I had a terrible migraine and I was thinking, and terrible migraines are something that I deal with and it more increasingly. And I was like, huh, I wonder if this pain is something I have to live with forever. And it really scared me. And then there was also this kind of like talk about synchronicity. I'm like, well, I am listening to this at this time where I'm hearing these people talking about like living with chronic pain and all these things you never thought you could live with. And we have such a fear surrounding the things we think we could never do or that we could never live through. And I mean, the reason I think we do this podcast, I know that we do this podcast and I'm assuming that you do Unfixed is that um, it's important to show that you can you can live in a way you didn't think you could. You know, you can live through things that you thought were too ugly and painful to get through. And I think that's very important to to encourage people to believe that there's more out there and more within them than they think that they could have ever done. Exactly. Well, well that's what, like, a support group is about that. A support group isn't about hearing other sad stories. It's about seeing how other people survive and learning from that and being able to honestly share what is you know but yes um survival is a community event as we always say um Mm. kimberly there's something else you said in one of your pieces that i just loved when you said you're talking about this whole process it's like you know being broken down and falling to your knees and then something rises and when you said that for everybody it's different i really love that because it's really true for some people it's god and for some Mm -hmm. people it's another person and for some people it's finding something inside of yourself Mm-hmm. What is it that you feel that you have found, um, both in yourself and in, in speaking with so many people about their about their broken open places? Well, definitely for myself, it is like what you were just talking about, Zara. The sense that peace can exist no matter what. Um, there, Andrew Solomon talks about. Uh, this experience of adopting a, a child with intellectual disabilities or no, sorry, he just adopted a child, but the possibility of anything could go wrong. And he was doing this during a, a time where he was writing a book about all the things that can go wrong with um, a human life. And people were thinking, how in the world would you adopt a child in this, you know, while you're researching this book? And he said, um, well, because what I'm learning is it's, it's not about, um, all the things that can go wrong in the human body. It's about the love that is possible when things do go wrong. And so I think I have absolutely what has risen up in me is a strength and an understanding that peace can exist simultaneously with, with suffering. 
um, peace, love. Um, and it is, it's almost a, it's a, that kinesthetic experience that I go back to laying in the bed that morning of, of being able to feel the stillness while the movement is happening um, and to hold it. Rachel Naomi Remen talks about, you know, we can't cure everything. Um, we can only cure a few things. The, the rest of it needs to be held. And, and so I think I'm discovering in myself an ability to hold all of it. And I get scared when I hear myself say that because then I think the magical thinker is like, oh, great. What am I asking for next? You know, like, what am I inviting in? But, okay. You know, it, it, it's, it's a hard one because I do know that probably is a, a very powerful theme in my life is to be able to hold peace within the storm. Um, at this, Yeah. So I hope for you that you can also hold your magical thinking <laughs> and mm-hmm. not and not negate it because it's also part of a beautiful part of you. Um, Thank you. You're yeah. the first person that's really I really appreciate that reframe because I think I've been kind of putting her in the bad girl corner for a while. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. all part of what I mean, it's a part it's in in what we're talking about. It's part of a whole life and a whole person, you know, and it's a balance. And I think like acknowledging where it fits in, in a healthy place is really healthy. But, you know, I mean, we're we're whole people. We're head and heart, you know, and some people are more head and more heart and some people are all head and all heart. And then you know, sometimes you get to a place where it's a, a groovy balance. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, at the end of every episode, we ask everyone the same thing, which is um, if you could have told, and you know, you've had a bunch of different experiences with grief. So whichever this applies to most, or it could just be you as a person at any point in your life. But if you could have told yourself one bit of advice at the beginning of, you know, your grieving grief journey, um, what would it be? And I guess for you, at what point? You know, I would have said, hey, Kimmy, I'm here with you. I won't abandon you. I've got you. And let's feel this right now. Let's feel this together. And it's going to be okay to feel these big feelings. I think I, think I would have really just held her and said, let's go there. I think she really needed that. Mm. Well, she's still inside of you and you're doing it now. Yeah. (laughs) You're healing her. You're healing all the ages of you. I was really touched by watching Unfixed and listening to the podcast. And there was one woman um, who was, you know, there were, all these folks were just ex- talking about their experiences with chronic illness and and pain and living. And one woman um, quoted Mary Oliver, and she said, uh, "Joy is not made. Joy is not made to be a crumb." And I thought that was really beautiful. And I kind of wanted to just end the episode by reading the full, um, you know, part of this Mary Oliver poem because I think it really speaks to what we're talking about here and. Mary Oliver is obviously such an amazing poet. Um, So Mary Oliver says, If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give in to it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed or about to be. We are not wise and not often very kind. And much can never be redeemed. 
Still life has some possibility left. Perhaps this is its way of fighting back, that sometimes something happened better than all the riches or powers in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. Mm. So. Yes. yes. <laughs> so we can end on that note from the wise Mary Oliver. But I think like the work you do uh, really just capitalizes on that sentiment. And we thank you for it because it's so beautiful and so important. Thank you. Thank you. This has been such a rich conversation. Yeah, it really has. Really and our, our connection to you is is about joy and it's about love. And that's yeah. what your work is, um, Kimberly. It's really beautiful work. I recommend to, I'm going to recommend it to all my clients. I mean, I work with people that have chronic illness and have children that have chronic illnesses and um, not just the losses. And it's just beautiful, beautiful work you're doing that just spreads the love and spreads the joy. Mm. Oh, beautiful. Yay. 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 Kimberly, can you just tell us where we can, where we can, people can find your work? Where can we watch Unfixed? How can we listen? Um, and anything else you want to mention before we sign off? Where the best place to go is just the, um, the website, which is unfixedfilm.com. I almost want to say, I have to almost check that. I'm sorry, because it just comes right up in my browser and I look at it. But I'm sure it's unfixedfilm.com. It's not unfixed.com. And within that website, you can navigate to the podcast. And the podcast is on uh, Apple, Spotify. um, And you can also navigate to the YouTube channel, which is where all of the the docu-series exists. You can also find the docu-series on this wonderful channel that is through Amazon called the Disorder Channel. And the Disorder Channel is full of films about chronic conditions and rare diseases. Um, Two guys over on the East Coast that have children with disabilities started this. They started it as a film festival first, and then when COVID hit, they decided to create the Disorder Channel. So you can find all of the docu- the unfixed docu-series over there. And we're continuing. We're doing six more episodes this year. And um, the big goal is to make a documentary out of all of this. But that's going to... I just sent a letter to Hillary and Chelsea Clinton yesterday, hoping that they'll... <laughs> Great. <laughs> ...jump on board. So, I, you know, at this we're point, it's a little out of crossed. my hands. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're doing great work and it's really helping people. And we're really grateful that you came on to share your, your insight with us and your story. And thank you so much for, you know, it's obviously such a a big ask and it takes a lot of vulnerability to like dig back into some of these like older memories and these, these feelings and being so candid about your life and where you've been at and where you're going and where you are. And so we really appreciate that. That, that vulnerability. Thank you so much. And I hope yeah. we can continue this uh, relationship together. We, um, I would just, love that. I was just going to yeah. say that I was so touched by <laughs> this conversation and just the open heartedness and wisdom and intelligence that you both shared. So um, best of luck to the two of you and what a sweet adventure you have together. <laughs> Thanks, Kimberly. We're very fortunate. All mm-hmm. right. Well, we'll talk to you later. Thank you so right. much. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.